Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mind Muscle Connection podcast and also Living Lean podcast too at the same time. It's kind of, a, we, we talked about this off air. We didn't know how we were going to do this, but um, I was going to do the intro this time. And so uh, this is our second round table. We have Brandon DeCruz and Jeremiah Baron. Welcome guys. Hey, thanks, thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the last one did uh, really well. So looking forward to uh, doing it again. We got, we got a bunch of questions, so let's, let's just freaking dive into it this time. And so I think this one's kind of like an icebreaker almost in a way. And so it's, uh, the question is who's got the best peck pop. <laughs> uh, I just want to know who actually asked this question, Jeremiah, can you put him on the spot or what? <laughs> it was Jody, our client success manager. Normally when she asks a question, it's her making fun of my calves. So I'm glad at least like pecs are a relative strength for me. So I'm glad at least she took it pecs this time. Uh, Jeff, you got some pretty neat pecs, man. I, I don't know. I I would say it probably has to be between one and you two. Well, Brandon, Brandon's not on the uh, video, so I guess we're we're, we're just not going to go with Jeff. Um, but I but I know me and Jeremiah, we we were prepared for this. We both wore the uh, the tanks today, so we knew this was coming. So. <laughs> yeah. Lucky you guys, because I'm in like 45 degree weather over here, so I'm in a sweatshirt. <laughs> Yeah, Jer- Jeremiah's got us beat there for sure. I know it's definitely probably what, like 80 degrees out there. So it is actually 90 here right now. 90 wow. degrees. Dang, that's crazy. You guys gotta get out here. Yeah, I man, sometimes when it when it gets super cold in the winter, I that's I'm just like, God, I can't believe it's like actually 70, 80 degrees somewhere else. Um anyway, so I don't I know whoever asked that, Jody. Sorry, we don't have a we don't have an answer uh for you on that. Um maybe what maybe we can do though. What we can do is when we meet up in, in Nashville. We will do a live recording for you guys. We'll do a competition. We'll, we'll, let the, we'll let the viewership judge it. And you guys, you know, be our judge. I like that. That was, act- Go ahead. That was actually the whole reason I got into fitness. Like the reason I'm here is because when I played football, so the seniors, like my junior high school, the seniors would always get up there and like give this motivational speech every Thursday night before our games on Friday. And one dude was up there giving this super serious speech, but the whole time he was just doing the peck pop. And me and my buddy thought that was so funny. And we like thought it would just be so hilarious to be able to do that when we were seniors. So literally we just went and bench five days a week. <laughs> we're just alternating between barbell bench press and double bench press. And, but like, no shit, that's why I'm here. So um, anyways. Hey, that's, that's awesome. Thank you for that. That's, that's good uh, that you're here. The, whenever, whenever I hear that, I always think of the guy from the old spice. Can't think of his name right now, but that's oh, what yeah. I think of when I hear the, the peck pop. I think, I think that's the ultimate peck pop right there. Uh, for sure. So, um, cool. Anyways, let's, let's go into the actual stuff that people came here for. Right. Uh, so the first question is what are your thoughts on fasted cardio? Is this something that's beneficial or necessary if I'm trying to lose the, the most amount of fat possible? Right. So, uh, that was a question I got posed to me. So I'll take it first and foremost, and just try to address a lot of things because this is something that's super common. Um, because fasted cardio, especially a few years ago was like extremely popular, extremely prominent. And it was almost looked at like, if you weren't doing it, you were missing out on something. So really, if we take like a step back and we look at fasted cardio from a physiological perspective, we can see why it was like something that many used and was heavily promoted. First of all, when you're fasted, and engage in any type of exercise, especially aerobic exercise, you're going to mobilize your fat stores and you're going to increase lipolysis, which is the burning of fat. Also, when you're doing specifically aerobic exercise like low-intensity cardio, which relies on fat as a fuel source, you're burning more fat as energy than you would if you did that same bout of cardio in a fed state. 
But what we really have to realize is there's a big difference. We have to separate oxidizing or burning fat from actual fat loss in and of itself, because we need to be able to oxidize fat to lose body fat. But just because something burns fat, meaning just because cardio burns fat and activity burns fat, or even a fat burner helps with the lipolytic type of fashion in terms of burning fat in that moment, doesn't mean that you will actually lose body fat because we have to realize that fat loss comes down to inducing a calorie deficit and being in a state of negative fat balance, meaning you've burned more grams of fat than you've taken in within the, the context of a day. So the easiest way, you know, I often will have this conversation with clients about the topic of fasted cardio. And I feel like the easiest way to look at this and understand it better is say you're in a building phase and you're eating in a calorie surplus, but you go to the gym every morning and you do a 30 minute bout of fasted cardio. What fuel source you predominantly burn during that cardio session will depend on what's mostly, you know, most readily available to your body. So if you do 300 calories worth of low intensity cardio in that fasted state, your body's going to rely on endogenous stores of energy. You don't have anything in your system. So it's going to rely on tapping into body fat. And then also seeing as the intensity is low, it's an aerobic activity, you're going to burn fat as your primary fuel source. So yes, during that period of time, you will burn most of the energy that you expend from fat itself. However, if you burn those 300 calories and then you go outside of the gym, you go back home and you eat them right back after finishing, you've essentially gained back what you've burned through that activity. Now, that's just from a mechanistic viewpoint. But I do, I will say that I do find some benefits. And I find a lot of people, including my cardio, are including my clients, that find a benefit from doing fasted cardio. Let's think about like the fact that it starts your day in a productive way. So you're getting up, you're getting active. Um, it increases how productive your mornings are. It kind of serves as an anchor. And I'll tell you personally, I do fasted cardio or a fasted walk to get my steps in or a portion of my steps in every single morning. And it's something that I really like starting my day in an active way. I get outside, I do it outdoors. I'm not on a treadmill, but I'm getting sunlight. I'm setting up my circadian rhythm and it really helps with beginning that morning routine. And now here's the other thing. We have to look at it from like, there's what's optimal, but then there's also what's practical. And we're trying to bridge the gap between the two. And we have to think about it in the context of someone's lifestyle. So if it's something that doing fasted cardio makes sure that you get it done before work and before your day gets hectic and like life gets busy, then it's a huge benefit for you. So it's going to help you get your daily step count up. Also, another thing just from like the fat burning perspective is it does increase metabolic flexibility. And what we see is that most people don't burn fat as efficiently as they do carbohydrates because most people, especially in, in Western society, are on a high carbohydrate diet. So by doing a facet activity that relies on burning fat, you're going to increase your ability to switch between fuel substrates for energy. So when you do low intensity activity, you're going to be better at tapping in and utilizing fat. And then when you do higher intensity activity, like when you're weight training, you're going to be better at oxidizing carbohydrates or glucose for energy. And then another caveat to that, and this is something that I deal with because I work with a lot of competition prep or even people that are serious, just serious you know, fitness um, enthusiasts that are really trying to get every little ounce of fat loss off or every little ounce of progress that they can. If you're someone that you're utilizing specific supplements or enhancements prior to doing your fasted cardio, such as like a Yohimbine hydrochloride, or even, you know, there's some people using growth hormone. Those are, are items that are going to liberate more fatty acids to be utilized as a fuel substrate, but they need to be done in a fasted state because when there's the presence of insulin, so if you are to take in protein or you're taking carbohydrates or any type of nutrient, it's going to increase insulin levels, which block 
some of the effectiveness of those products, especially yohimbine, which has to be done or has to be taken in a non-insulogenic state. So this is where we have to look at past, you know, is it better? Is it not? It's, it's really context dependent. And then also just from like a habitual standpoint, if you're someone that you skip fasted cardio and then you don't hit your weekly cardio target, or it reduces your average daily step count, or you find that you can't fit it in later in the day, whether it means that you miss it completely where it causes like you to do a shorter duration or to neglect car- doing cardio completely, both from like a health and a um, activity perspective, then I really do think it's something that could be an added benefit to incorporating into your day, but no, it isn't necessary. Yeah. I, I think we're on the same page with that. Very similar to what you said. I like it as an anchor. Like it's part of my morning routine. I go for a 15 to 20 minute walk. Now I'm not necessarily trying to reap any benefits out of it outside of, I'm getting moving, I'm getting sunlight, I'm getting steps. It helps me set my intentions for the day, and I'm very intentional with that. And that's something we apply for clients as well. But really, again, when we're looking at, like, as you mentioned, like the fat loss benefits of it, again, it's going to come down to your overall deficit, your overall movement across the course of the day. And that's a lot very similar to, like, when you hear people talk about, like, keto's a superior diet for fat loss because we have, we're burning more fat, right? We have more fat oxidation happening. But as you mentioned, like there's a difference between fat oxidation and us actually losing body fat, which is going to come down to our overall calorie intake. So yeah, I, I think we're very much on the same page with that, where it is something we implement it with clients, but really, especially in our perspective, like, as you mentioned, can be beneficial for metabolic flexibility, but really from our perspective, more than anything, it's kind of like, let's get you moving. Let's increase your step count. So like, but I think people really benefit from, if we look at it as just from a psychological perspective, clients really seem to benefit from it as rather than like, Hey, let's just try to hit your steps throughout the day. There is something a little bit sexier to like, Hey, we're going to do 15 minutes of fasted cardio in the morning. Now it's again, not like that's magic, but it's kind of like you can sell the client on steps a bit more and just getting more movement, getting that sunlight in the morning, which is going to help regulate the circadian rhythm, et cetera. And there is a lot of benefit to that and kind of almost just like, selling it to the client in a sexier package, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I agree on, I don't have anything different that I would add to that. Um, I agree that, uh, again, I think it just becomes something that either here, it's either good or bad, but there's, there's, it has its pros and cons. Right. And I think it's an issue when like, you think it's going to give you this special benefit and then you try to fit it in, you end up getting less sleep because of it. And it's like, oh, okay, you're not getting that, that fat loss benefit that you want. Um, again, like you guys, like you guys have said multiple times, energy balance is the most important there throughout the entire day. Uh, one thing that you guys brought up that I thought was good though, that it, it's actually, you know, this is something that I think you could definitely tell your client to do is the circadian rhythm part. Cause we know that getting some sunlight early in the day is, is super helpful. So I, I like that. Um, but also as Jeremiah said too, I think it's good to it's just another tool in the toolbox to kind of get clients like steps moving early in the day. Cause I know just, I think like really with anything, but I, I, in this current fat loss phase that I'm in, like if I'm behind on steps, it's just kind of like shit. Like I got it. You're just like catching up throughout the day and it can be a good way to, to just get things going early in the day before you have other stuff come up. Um, and it, I'm sure you guys are the same way, but like usually things that I find challenging to do, like, uh, that, you know, if you, if you have like other stuff come up, it's easy to push off, like doing things like this first thing in the morning can be super helpful too. But there's, yeah, I, I love the circadian rhythm one. That was honestly one that I didn't really think of that I, that could potentially be super helpful for a lot of people. Um, because, you know, most people spend most of their day in, in a room and they don't ever get 
any sunlight. So yeah, I think that, I think we sum that up pretty good. You guys have any, anything else you want to add to that? I think we're good. Cool. Uh, let's go to the next one. So, uh, I'm going to bounce around here. So I think this is one was from Jeremiah, uh, exercises that will help build the vastus lateralis part of the quad. Yeah. So vastus lateralis is going to be kind of that outer quad sweep. So really when we're looking at this, what I would say is it would just be like advice for building your quads well as a whole, right? So when we're looking at your quad, then it would be, okay, selecting movements that are going to overload that tissue to its full contractile range. So basically what I would say is something that's going to overload the quad. And so I, what I will say here is, and I'm interested here, you guys' take on this, because maybe there is something in the research that I'm not aware of, but I wouldn't fuck around with like, I'm going to try to turn my toes outwards more than normal on my, like my leg extensions or my leg press to try to target like that outer sweep of the quad a little bit more. What I would say is like, as far as stance and setup goes, I would put yourself in the position, like when we're talking about like toes in, toes out and what that looks like, the position that's going to allow you to achieve the deepest degree of knee flexion and basically get your hamstring close to your calf, right? So again, when we look at like growing a muscle tissue, so basically here we're just talking about then like what are going to be the best movements to build your quads, right? So then when you look at that, we know that muscle or overloading the muscle tissue in the lengthened position is going to be the most stimulative to hypertrophy, right? So basically then within that, that's basically going to be like a squat pattern, right? So there I would look at like a back squat, um, a hack squat, a leg press. This could even be like a split squat with your front heel elevated, right? Like within those movements, finding the variation that really seems to give you the best, if we're digging into like the stimulus to fatigue ratio, right? For There's absolutely nothing wrong with back squats, but for a lot of people like a hack squat, or a leg press will feel a little bit better. We'll be able to get a lot more knee flexion and we can really make sure that that quads the rate limiter, which that's something I would look at as well as right. Like what's the limiting factor for this movement. So for example, if you're trying to do like a Zercher squat where you have the barbell and the crook of your arms, but your goal is to grow quads. Well, really the rate limiter there is probably going to be your elbows just fucking hurt or your core is giving out rather than your quads are getting out. Right. So we want that specific tissue that we're trying to grow to be the rate limiter. Right. So really what I would say is choosing I would, if the quads is a goal, I would probably select two movements at the very least that are really going to overload that tissue in the length of position. So again, like a hack squat, a leg press, a back squat, this could be a split squat variation. And then we also want to look at overloading that in the shortened range, right? So basically with those squat variations, the movement's going to be hardest when we are at the bottom of the movement, that muscle tissue is lengthened. And then on the flip side, we want to do something where we're also overloading it, where the movement is hardest when that tissue is shortened, which would be something like a leg extension. So like within that, really that would be my advice, which I would say as a whole is just good advice for building quads. What's you guys take on that? Yeah. So when it, you know, you hit on a lot of things that honestly I agree with uh, in terms of overloading, I'm, I'm really looking at biasing the length and portion. So that could be done through a hack squat through a regular barbell back squat. Um, it could be done through a Smith machine squat. Really, if someone told me what is one exercise that I can utilize, I'm always going to bias the length and portion. You're going to have better range of motion. Um, you know, you're going to have more uh, hypertrophic stimulus from that. So even if it came down to it, and, and this is like a hypothetical, and someone said, I just need one movement. That's all I can fit in within my session. I'm going to go to something like a hack squat. I'm going to bias that length and portion because even in a movement, like the leg extension, which does bias that shortened position, we do see in actually recent uh, literature from, I believe, last year, that when they looked at the different positions of flexion or, or ranges of motion, even the just 
putting the leg extension through the partial range of motion that was in the lengthened position, it actually led to better hypertrophic outcomes and putting it in the shortened position as well as the full range of motion um, condition. So it's it really shows that there's a lot of biasing or, or we should bias a lot of movements towards that lengthened portion. But overall for, for total quad stimulus, I do like a selection of multiple um, exercises to really round out full hypertrophy because we do know that there's regional hypertrophy. So we can get different sections of the quads targeted with different exercises. And there's even a study, I believe it's by, by Fonseca, uh, 2014, where they did a condition where they did just Smith machine uh, hack squats or Smith machine squats versus four other variations. So it was like a Smith machine squat. I want to say it was a leg, uh, leg press, um, a lunge, and maybe a leg extension or a lying leg curl. I'm, I'm not uh, particularly sure about the last movement, but they saw very similar increases in muscle cross-sectional area, but they saw a more even distribution in terms of the actual muscle fibers and the development of the full quadriceps. So it's just, that's one, you know, I guess, win for exercise selection and having more of a more variety. But ultimately, if there's a preference, I'm always going to bias that lengthen. And I'm usually going to place that with a higher priority earlier on in the session, because we know the said principle, specific adaptations to impose demands. So if we're really trying to bias as much quad growth as possible, let's start with a hack squat. Let's start with your preferred movement selection that biases that lengthen portion and overloads it. Yeah, I, I thought... Go ahead, Brett. Go ahead, Jeremiah. No, I fully agree. I think that like, I know that we have questions around like your favorite exercises. And I think it's like, if you have to choose one, I would always lean towards a lengthened muscle group. And I kind of look at like the short position as kind of like the cherry on top, right? Like when we're building a program for a client that has minimal time, we're almost always like within what they can recover from gonna bias like those lengthened positions. But then when it gets to the point where it's like, okay, we've done like two to potentially even like three lengthen overload movements for this specific tissue. And we're just creating so much fatigue with that. We could maybe better manage that if we also then like add in a little bit of short work later on, that's not going to be quite as fatigue, but we're still going to add some stimulus, but I a hundred percent agree. Like when we're choosing priorities, like definitely that length that needs to be your number one focus. Yeah. I, I feel like kind of like you guys said, you want, you want to hit your big rocks with, with some of these lists. And I think people try to maybe, find that like perfect exercise, but it's like, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're trying to build like your vastus lateralis, like Jeremiah said, and, and, and Brandon too, like, you just want to hit these like muscle, you want to hit these exercises that are going to really just hit the quad, right? Like I had this ex or this question the other day, um, in Instagram about, Hey, how do I hit the glute med, um, muscle more? And it's just like, I mean, you know, obviously again, like we, Jeremiah, we were talking about this off air with Instagram. It's like, you don't have like that context, but like, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, most of your training is going to be those, those big exercises. Right. And then from there, you know, there's only so many exercises you can do for these like small, like most certain, like regional hypertrophy. Right. And so for example, I think genetics has, has a big um, role in it. For example, my legs, like Jeremiah, you've seen, you've seen my quads, like for whatever reason, I just have a, a massive, like sweep on the outside. And people are like, what do you do for that? I'm like, I just train legs. Like I don't do anything do you like I mean? four sets of quads a week? <laughs> Literally like it's five sets, isn't it? It's yeah. I think it's five sets. Cause I do three sets of uh, pendulum squats and then two, two sets of, um, uh, uh, lunges, quad focused lunges. Um, so that's it. That's it for, for the quads. Right. So, uh, it's crazy. And I think just like genetically, some people just have muscle groups that just do that. Right. And I think that that plays a, a big role in it. So I don't know if you guys have anything to, to say in terms of like genetics and how big of a role it has on that, but. Cool. Um, but 
but yeah, that I don't, I don't have anything else to, to add to that. Um, I think maybe though, if, if you don't mind real quick, Jeremiah, uh, what, how would you describe like lengthened versus shortened? Cause you know, I, I feel like that's kind of brought up a lot. And so yeah. I'm just kind of curious on, on that. Absolutely. So the easiest way to think of this is where a movement is hardest, right? So if we look at like a back squat or a hack squat, typically that's going to be hardest at the bottom of the position when that quad is stretched out, right? So think like lengthen or stretch, where if we look at like your hamstrings, the bottom of a Romanian deadlift is typically going to be the hardest when it's that those hamstrings are in the lengthened or stretched position, right? On the flip side then shortened, is when the movement is typically hardest, the resistance feels the greatest when the muscle is fully contracted or shortened, right? So, and if we look at leg extensions, like we can't, and this is like way getting into the weeds, but like the resistance will actually vary. So some of them are going to be like more mid-range or even like a little bit more mid-range to lengthen versus like fully short to overload. But that's, with that, then we're kind of like getting way far off into the weeds. But typically, like if we look at a leg extension, for example, like it might feel hardest when we are at the top of the rep and the muscle is fully contracted. Or if we look again, like on the, if we look at like hamstrings, for example, if we do like a lying leg curl, typically that's going to feel hardest at the top when the hamstrings are fully contracted and maybe feel a little bit easier towards the bottom of the movement. So that's typically how I describe it. Awesome. Yeah, just to add one more thing, because I think you summed that up greatly, but um, just so people understand from like uh, muscular anatomy perspective, like when we look at training at longer muscle lengths, so like that overloaded lengthened position, we're looking at greater increases in distal region of the muscles. Your distal region is your further from the joint. And that's generally something that we don't get through day-to-day activities. So when you're walking, you're not loading those, those portions of your muscles. So that's one of the theories or one reason why I've heard. And I also, you know, kind of speculate myself that that's why these are more hypertrophic. It's putting ranges of motion and putting parts of the muscle through under tension that we generally don't get from day-to-day life. And then when it comes to like shortened uh, muscle lengths or, or um, exercises that overload the shortened position, that contracted state, they have more proximal muscle growth. So you're getting more growth closer to the joint itself. So just think far away is going to be length in position and close is going to be proximal. That's super interesting. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's, I mean, it makes sense that, like you said, when you're training them in the, uh, length and position, that's not like something that we do all the time. And, you know, that's why those are probably why that's so like hypertrophic, um, which, which is super interesting. Uh, you can think about it. When do we go into a length and position during our day-to-day life? And I mean, generally we don't have, like, if we went to go bend down and grab something, we don't do it with a full, uh, like with full knee flexion. Like you're not getting up and going, you know, over your toes with your knees, you're doing things in a a shortened state where you might contract, like say for your bicep, how often do we go to the end length and grab something? We generally wouldn't. Whereas in a lengthened bicep position, say like an inclined dumbbell curl, it's overloading that lengthened position, but those aren't things that we normally load in day-to-day life. However, if you're going to grab something, you're grabbing a box, you're more in that contracted position, almost like you're flexing your bicep. And we're utilizing that more in a day-to-day basis. So if we think about it, I always bring things back from an evolutionary perspective. These are things our body has become more accustomed to over time. So there's, there's less of a stimulus and a need to adapt to those movements because we've already adapted over time. Whereas if we do something that's more of a novel stimulus in our actual training, then we're going to get more of a hypertrophic response from it. And, and let's be honest that the lengthened position and like kind of training with a more full range of motion like that, it's more challenging and you have to use less weight essentially to, to get there as well. So it's also more challenging and it, it uh, hurts the ego as well too, in most cases. 
Absolutely. It's so much less efficient. So that's why we don't use it day-to-day life. We have to force ourselves to get in the gym and get uncomfortable. Cool. Yeah, I think we summed that one up pretty good. So let's let's go into the next one. I think this will be a pretty cool one to chat about. So what are the top three supplements you'd recommend? All right. So I actually reached back out to this individual and I wanted to know like what category, because this is something that's so broad and they said just general supplementation. So I'm going to take general supplementation. If you guys want to go more muscle building or in a different direction, fat loss or whatever it may be, but they said general supplementation. So I'm going to categorize that under muscle health and, and kind of like an all encompassing thing. And maybe I want to hit on some things that I think people overlook. So my number one is going to be creatine, you know, number one, that's going to be the most recommended supplement. That's probably the number one priority ergogenic, meaning um, performance enhancing supplement that I put into my programs. And the main benefit with creatine is it provides extra ATP, especially during high intensity exercise. And it also helps with quicker uh, regeneration of ATP. And ATP is just our cellular energy. So that's what we rely on for everything in life from creating hormones to contracting muscles. It's how our body generates energy for all our activities, both in the gym and out of the gym. But there are so many benefits to creatine. And this is something that I've really gotten exposed to because I have worked in the supplement industry for so long that a lot of times we only focus on the physical benefits. So I'll highlight some of those, but there are so many other benefits. And that's why I categorize it under general supplementation. And, and it also, I consider it a health supplementation. So we know that it's going to hydrate the muscle cells. So it's cell volumizing. So it's going to help with hydration. It pulls water intracellularly, meaning into the muscle cell. So for anyone out there that thinks it causes you to hold water, you're thinking about subcutaneous water, which would be like edema or water retention or something that would be induced by like high stress levels. That isn't what creatine does. So this is something that you don't have to cut out before your peak week or to lose water weight. It's going to pull in some water weight, but it's going to be in the muscle cell. So it's going to make you look fuller and rounder. It decreases muscle damage. Um, we know that it increases work capacity. It improves strength and power output. It also increases glycogen storage and glucose uptake. So it's really synergistic with the usage of carbohydrates. And we see that when you take it with carbohydrates, it increases your glycogen storage and resynthesis. So it helps you resynthesize glycogen. But at the same time, insulin acts as a a catalyst to get creatine into the muscle cell. So just taking it, it's like this dual synergistic role where creatine upregulates glucose uptake. So we have more glycogen storage in the muscle. So you look fuller, but also carbohydrates, which elicit insulin, help with getting a higher absorption of creatine. So the other performance benefits it provides, it's been shown that it can increase the amount of reps performed, especially within moderate and higher rep ranges, which require more energy. So the fact that it produces more ATP, it's going to allow you to put more uh, reps into the gym. And then it can help with gaining muscle over time, because think about it, if you're able to improve both your work capacity as well as the amount of sets per uh, or reps per set that you do and your strength over the course of a training cycle, that's going to, you know, induce more hypertrophy. And then it also, from a mental aspect, there's so many benefits from improved cognition. It's, it's even being used in like some Alzheimer's treatments and, and with um, neurodegeneration. So there's a lot of research that's just recently been, been done. I'm looking at the cognitive performance enhancing effects of creatine within the elderly as well as with TBI treatments. So those that have suffered from, um, you know, uh, traumatic brain injuries. Um, so like I said, really good. It's very synergistic with carbohydrates. So I'll generally have uh, clients either utilize it with a carbohydrate containing meal or generally in their intro workout. Next one is going to be fish oil. And this is one of the few, you know, I've, 
you know, we call it a supplement, but honestly, it's it's a form of, of food essentially, because you know, this is one that I find imperative as they contain essential fatty acids and many, like nine out of 10 people that come to me don't eat enough fatty fish in their diet and they don't obtain these necessary nutrients. Because remember, these are essential fatty acids. We need to get them from the diet because our bodies cannot produce EPA or DHA which is what we're looking to get from a, a fish oil supplementation. And there's so many benefits of these two essential uh, fatty acids, EPA and DHA from, you know, in terms of cardiovascular health, it's been shown to reduce the risk of heart disease and type two diabetes. It decreases systemic inflammation. So it's in a lower inflammatory levels. It helps with brain health and cognition. It's even been shown in one study. I believe it's in one study to aid in fat loss and has been shown to decrease fat mass. Um, so it makes losing weight a little bit um more easier to attain, I would say, uh, helps with the maintenance of muscle growth. It's also been shown to increase rates of muscle protein synthesis. Um, it's been shown to improve symptoms of depression. It can lower joint pain from that um, systemic inflammation perspective. And so this is something that I find is really beneficial from a health aspect because there's been shown that the average American diet only contains one-tenth of the amount of APA and DHA that we need to consume for normal function. So this is why utilizing this type of supplementation is able to fill some nutrient deficiencies that so many people have. And then the last one, this is actually the number one supplement that I see being deficient in clients' diets. So when I have someone come to me, I run all their um, their current data. So they'll, I'll have them do a food journal and I'll run that all through a database to see what their micronutrient deficiencies are. Because there's a lot of people that whether they're in a diet or they're in a surplus, it doesn't matter. They're either overfed and underfueled in terms of like, in terms of malnourished, or they're in a deficit both of calories and of nutrients. So one of the number one most deficient minerals in you know today's society, as well as the clients that I encounter, is magnesium. And magnesium is so important because it's a key cofactor, and I think it's over like four hundred vital and crucial reactions and processes in the body. Every time that I look into literature on magnesium, it's like that numbers went up like. 20 or 30. So I remember when I first got into the supplement industry, it was at like 250. And the last time I checked, it was over 400 vital functions. So every few years when they're doing research on this essential uh, micro or nutrient, they're seeing more and more benefits. And from just a training perspective, it's going to help with everything from improving muscular contractions to insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism. It helps with nerve transmission, blood pressure management. And then it's also really important for our body comp and health improvements. So, you know, being sufficient in terms of your intake of magnesium has been shown to increase testosterone. It's going to improve sleep quality because it helps you get into a parasympathetic state. It increases your stress resilience because of that, that shifting over to parasympathetic state. It enhances strength and muscular endurance. It lowers muscle damage. And we see that for the, the average population, we're seeing a deficiency of around 50 to 70% of people are deficient in magnesium. And we have research that shows that athletes or people that are highly active due to their sweat rate, they're losing and expelling more electrolytes, including magnesium. We need 20% over the RDA. So with that, you have to keep take into consideration that um, statistic of 50 to 70% of people being deficient is only on these the average population. So there's even more athletes that are most likely or active populations, people like us that train regularly that are deficient in this. So really when it comes down to it, my biggest suggestion is get some magnesium supplementation, start utilizing it. It's going to help with so many functions from your ability to utilize carbohydrates to your ability to contract muscle. Um, if you have cramping, that's one um, 
huge micronutrient deficiency that's linked to high rates of cramping, but also you want to look at the bioavailability of supplement. And this is why I think that magnesium supplementation is, is either not as common or popular or isn't seen as being as helpful as it could be because it is something that it is, you get what you pay for. And so in terms of bioavailability, there's only, there's a very low um, percentage of absorption rate with many of the, the common products on the market. So a lot of them serve as almost like laxatives. They really have no physiological benefit. So my suggestion always is to look for glycinate, which is it's bonded to glycine. So you'll, you'll see it in two forms. It's either magnesium glycinate or magnesium bisglycinate. And that's going to be bonded to glycine. It's going to be great for sleep because glycine is a um, neurotransmitter that helps or amino acid that helps with uh, rest and GABA production and helps with turning down your sympathetic nervous system. And it's really been shown to have a much higher uh, increased rate of absorption. So if you see anything, if you have a multivitamin or you have a magnesium supplement and you see oxide or any other form besides maybe glycinate or citrate, go with another option. I have, I, I just have a, a couple quick questions. So real quick, I'm glad that you brought up like what kind of magnesium, because I feel like somebody hears magnesium. And like you said, you can get so many different magnesiums. Um, and, and I think it's important to, to get the right one. Uh, also just to hit on magnesium and, and Brandon, you can fill uh, say whatever you want on this, but it's also, I think for people that take like multivitamins, they need to realize that it's not in there. Um, if they, if it is, it's like very small amounts. I don't think it's in there at all because, because it's a mineral, but, uh, I did have a question on fish oil real quick. Um, if you're somebody who eats fish pretty regularly, do you think that that you still have the need to take fish oil or do you think that lowers it or yeah. What are your thoughts there on that? This is actually a controversial subject, um, because often there's been, um, there's been, I guess, um, recommendations, especially from like the American, um, you know, food council and stuff that if you eat fatty fish, like salmon two to three times a week, you should be sufficient in your, um, intake of EPA and DHA. Now, recently there was, um, I don't know if it was a systematic review or meta-analysis that actually analyzed the quality of salmon in us in like generalities and saw that they were at a, they had a much lower proportion of EPA and DHA than was labeled on their actual, um, like on what we were seeing in the uh, stores. And we have to keep in mind that this applies to everything. This applies to calories, macronutrients. The FDA allows up to a 20% discrepancy, meaning that processed products or even whole food products that have a label on it can be 20% off. Now that could be 20% upswing. So say like your Oreos, they could be 20, contain 20% more calories than they say on the label and they're good. As long as the average batch, which is within that 20%. Whereas with something that has like a micronutrient or maybe even a protein content, we know that even chicken, chicken breasts, they range in terms of their actual protein content per serving, you know, depending on the chicken, the stock, whatever you got. So with that, we could be 20% under what it says on the label. So really what I say is unless someone's eating a fatty fish source that they know is high quality daily, that I would still recommend at least a baseline minimum of, I would say 1.8 grams of combined EPA and DHA per day. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have, I, I just didn't know if, if that was sufficient enough, but it sounds like basically you probably just as a safety net, you'd want to make sure you, you uh, supplement with, with a fish oil. So, yeah. And this is actually something that you guys can get tested. It is a little bit expensive. Um, you can get your serum levels of EPA and DHA. There's an omega-3 index test. Um, however, anytime I've even had certain clients, like high-end clients that really are into the tracking aspect that do eat high quality fish. I have sent them the literature on that review that I had read about 
the quality of the fish. It doesn't mean fish quality in general. It just means within the context of what they studied, they just saw it was underdosed in terms of what it actually said on the label. So then if you think about it, if you're only eating this three times per day and you're trying to spread it out and actually hit that minimum, if you're 20% under three times per day, you're at a sufficiently sufficiently lower intake than you think you are. So I have had a few clients get that omega-3 index for those that do eat fish on the regular and didn't want to supplement with it. And generally they've come out that they were under that recommended daily dose. Cool. Um, I'll just throw in two real quick uh, that I wanted to add. Uh, Creatine for sure. I'm sure that that's one that we probably can all agree on. I think creatine is great. Again, I I would uh, creatine monohydrate, you know, um, that's one that we would tell people to get just because all the other forms are more expensive and they haven't been proven to be any more efficient. If anything, I think they've been shown to be like almost even less efficient than uh, regular than monohydrate and monohydrate is cheaper. But in saying that, I don't know if you guys have noticed this monohydrate has gone up a little bit in pricing. I don't Crazy. know if you notice that yeah. just like everything. Yes. Go ahead. It's up about 200 to 300 percentile in terms of raw material um, costs. So it, yeah. it's went up substantially. But like you said, in terms of quality, a lot of people will say, all right, this version, um, it has higher absorption rate or whatever it may be. We see with creatine, it's 99% bioavailable and you're going to saturate your cells, whether you do a loading phase where you do, you utilize a spread dose of 10 grams per day for seven days or if you do five grams per day, which is generally the recommended daily dose for a male for 30 days or for four weeks, essentially. So either way, you're getting as much creatine absorption into your cells as you need. Yeah. And on creatine too, like you kind of mentioned there in terms of dosing, like I think the big mistake people make with creatine is they're not consistent with it. Like you want to be consistent with it. Like otherwise, you know, if, if you're not going to take it every day, it's just kind of like, you know, if you're going to take it once or twice a week, it's just kind of pointless. Right. So you want to make sure you're, you're taking it uh, regularly too. Um, and then the other, the other ones that I wanted to add in were, uh, and this isn't going to give you any like extra benefit, but it's just because in Jeremiah, I'm sure you can, and, and Brandon too, I'm sure you guys can relate to this. A lot of times clients protein levels are super low. So I like to always recommend a protein powder just as a supplement, right? We don't want to rely on protein powder, but I like it as, uh, something to supplement with, um, whey protein's fine. Casein's fine. I think they're both great options. Uh, casein, probably something that you'd want to do a little bit further away from your workout, but either are fine. Um, and then one that uh, uh, didn't get hit on uh, was uh, vitamin D. Uh, Jeremiah, you might be able to get away with this because you can get out all year long down in Arizona. But for people like me and Brandon that live in these colder areas that we can't get outside, like I think vitamin D is probably one that you want to look into uh, for sure. Um, just because even if you can get outside, like during the winter, you know, you have to, your skin has to like get you know, you'd ha- it, the sun has to, uh, get your skin. So like if, if you're wearing long sleeves, you know, it's not going to be as, as effective. I don't think it, I don't even know if, if that helps at all, if, if you have uh, like long sleeves on or coats on, uh, coat on or anything like that. Um, but vitamin D, I feel like that that's a big one for people. I feel like, you know, we know that, um, in the winter people kind of get the winter blues. And, um, I think that that's definitely part of it. So that would kind of be the, the two that I would add to that list. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an important one. And then I like clients that live in colder climates because the, the sad, the seasonal affective disorder is a very real thing. And like, we've sit out hella those sad lights to clients to just like, Hey, let's do something to kind of bring this up in vitamin D supplementation, of course, is helpful there as well. Um, if there's like a broad stroke, like the most common supplements that our clients take, it would be creatine, omega-3s and magnesium. So like, I'm very much in agreement with Brandon there. 
I don't know if just one other to throw in there. I don't know if I would consider this a supplement, but I think salt, ionized salt is a lot of times like I have a lot of clients who seem to have been raised to think that like they should avoid salt and that like all salt is bad when it's really like, Hey, we get so many performance benefits from this. It's going to help your hydration, your hydration balance. Um, this is going to help you train harder. This is going to help your pumps in the gym. And we know like within iodine, that's going to be important for thyroid support as well. So I think that that, I don't know if I would actually consider that a supplement. We could take it in like supplemental form, but I think that's something that people often overlook and avoid when it's actually like, I've worked with many people who have just avoided it for so long, that it's actually like, Hey, you get huge benefits from just adding this back in. Absolutely, man. Salt's a key. It's actually an essential micronutrient. So it's one of the number one most depleted electrolytes, um, especially through sweat and through exercise. It's something that many people are deficient in. And I think what we really, it's been demonized in our society because we have to realize that there's reports on processed foods where the average American eats between 70 and 84% of their calories from processed foods. Now think about that. Anything with a long shelf life, it has a high intake or a high amount of sodium in it to help its shelf stability. So the average person that is unhealthy, that isn't active, they're over-consuming sodium. However, when you're eating whole foods, you have very little sodium intake. And that's another micronutrient that I run through uh, my system when I have someone come to me and I always add, and Jeremiah, we've had these conversations about adding Mm -hmm. iodized salt to help with thyroid conversion. Also with adding salt throughout the context of pre, intra and post workouts, help with the absorption, the rehydration process, because hydration, a lot of people have a misguided perception of what hydration is. They think it's water, but hydration actually in the medical literature is the balance of fluids and electrolytes, including sodium and especially potassium, which most people are deficient in both. So we need, we need to utilize both of those things and utilize them both from a health perspective, as well as from a performance perspective. Yeah. I'm glad you guys bring that up because salt is something that's demonized. And and then because of that, a lot of people miss out on its benefits, but, but I think again, it's just because, you know, what the standard American diet is, and that's where it gets its bad rap from. But uh, if you're active, like you probably don't need to necessarily worry about that too much. And if anything, like you said, it, it's going to be helpful. Um, I think this is kind of a good question to go into right now, uh, since we just talked about it, but what are the pros and cons to taking break from creatine monohydrate? I would say there's not really any pros to taking a break from it. I mean, the cons are, as we discussed, you like if we look at the first about 15 seconds of exercise that's essentially going to come from like an explosive exercise we look at your energy systems your body's basically going to be running off of creatine more or less right so like when we have less creatine basically that means like hey maybe there's another rep or two in the tank that we could have squeezed out of this set or like been more explosive within which could be like slightly heavier weight moved, or you could have squeezed out a couple more reps if we were just supplementing with creatine. So if like, from my perspective, there's not really any pros to taking a break from it. There are definitely some cons to taking a break from it. Um, creatine is an interesting one because I feel like I've seen a ton of questions about it. And I don't know if it maybe is like one, I think maybe people like overestimate. Now creatine is definitely something we've seen over and over again to be very beneficial, but it's not the same as like, you started a cycle of trend, for example, where it's like, holy shit, like, right. I think that people might expect that. And it's like, damn, creatine just doesn't work for me where it's realistically probably more like, and there are tons of benefits of it outside of just performance, right? Like as we discussed cognitive benefits, plenty of health benefits there as well. 
But like when we're looking at your training, really from my perspective, typically creatine would be like, hey, maybe you could squeeze out one to two more reps that you couldn't have before thanks to us supplementing with this. But yeah, I don't really think there's a lot of pros to take a break from it. Honestly, I, I wouldn't see any positive to taking a benefit from it, especially if you're trying to use it from an ergogenic perspective. We have to realize, especially with something like creatine, is it has chronic effects, meaning we need to saturate our actual muscle cells, which is, Jeff, you hit on it, man. You need to take it consistently. You need to saturate those um, your muscle cells with creatine to actually benefit from its actual performance enhancing benefits or its health enhancing benefits. And just taking that five grams of a, that's a maintenance dose. When we look into literature on like cognitive performance enhancement, actually most of the studies are on 10 grams per day and there's no deleterious effects from that. So it's not going to, the only thing that it's going to have is on blood work. You might see raised creatinine levels, but you would just inform your, your, um, medical professional that you're taking creatine. Also, you have high protein intake, which raises creatinine levels. And also if you're training, you're degrading more more protein during training, you're breaking down muscle tissue, you're causing muscle damage. All three of those aspects are going to raise your creatinine levels, but it's not something to worry about from a physiological or physical perspective, but there's really no benefit. And there's only drawbacks from it because we do get creatine in the, um, in the standard diet. Like if you had an omnivorous diet, but it's only like one gram per day. It's not enough to actually get a performance benefit from. However, there are what there's considered. You'll hear people say that they don't respond to creatine. There's creatine non-responders. That's actually generally because they, I think it's like 80% of people respond to creatine, but that 20 or 30% that don't, it's because they already have such a high meat intake that they actually fully saturating their cells. So it's not that they don't respond to creatine. They just have so much in the diet that they're not getting an added benefit because you can only saturate your cells so much. Yeah, I, I, there really is, there really is no, no downside to it. Um, I, I feel like one thing I'll hear on this, and I don't know if you guys hear this too. It's like, oh, well, I just want to take a break. Cause like, I just want to not put that stuff in my body for a little bit, like any type of supplement. I just want to take a break from it. It's like, like you said, Brandon, it's, it's, it's found in food. It's found in meat. So like you, you get it all the time anyways. Right. Uh, so that doesn't make much sense, but from, from what I've seen in the literature, and I'm sure you guys can say the same thing. Like there has no downside to just taking it regularly. Right. If anything, like you guys said, if anything, you're going to miss out on some potential benefits. One question I did have, and I don't know either of you can answer this. There is like in our brain, we have a little bit of storage of creatine in our brain, correct? Or my, or did I um, just make that up? No, I think I've heard something about that, but I, I can't say that I'm well-read on actual creatine storage within the brain. Just because I, I think the, the only reason I bring that up is because I know that you were talking about cognitive benefits. And I think that's partly why there is potential some benefits there. And uh, so, but if you guys don't know, I don't know for sure either. So I just wanted to uh, see, see your guys' thoughts on it. Um, do you have anything else that you want to uh, go over on this one? Yeah, just one last thing with the chronic usage. Do you realize that when we say that, it's not only that you have to take it chronically or long-term to see a benefit, but it also isn't something that you're going to take once or for a week and see a benefit from. So it doesn't have an acute performance enhancing benefit, which I've seen many people over the years say, hey, I tried creatine for a week. I didn't see a benefit. I didn't see more reps. I didn't feel stronger. I just saw some water weight. Well, it doesn't work acutely. So it's not like caffeine. I know that a lot of people will just kind of confuse different ergogenic aids. They'll take something like caffeine, feel it immediately, or they'll use a powder ergogenic aid like citrulline malate and get a pump that first time. That's not how creatine works. So really 
it would actually be more conducive than any other supplement for the most part to take it long-term as compared to something like a caffeine, like a citrulline malate, like a beta alanine that you could cycle through during times and periods in which you need those products more. I'm actually glad you brought that up because I, I do think that that kind of deters people away from taking it. It's like you said, they, they, you don't see any acute benefits of it. So they're like, it didn't do anything for me, but it's like, well, again, you have to take it regularly to, to see anything. And like you said, it's not like caffeine. Um, but also I wanted to hit on Jeremiah's point one more time too, uh, as you were talking about that, like, again, I think it's because it's brought up so much now people do think that it's like this magic supplement, but again, it's not going to be so, like it, it does help, but it's not going to be like life-changing either. And I think it's, it's weird because I feel like it's getting more popular, but because of that, again, now it's becoming one of those things that like if people think it's going to have this, this magic benefit to it, and it's not, but it is going to help though. And I, I think that that's important to uh, stress to, to everybody. Um, so we'll go into the, the next question here. So do you think doing steps can limit someone's ability to gain muscle? Also, why do people suggest hitting 10 K steps? All right. So actually I reached out to this individual as well, because I wanted to know exactly what they were, what perspective they were coming from. And the concept that this person was referring to in the question was in regards to concurrent training and the interference effect, which just for you guys out there, you haven't heard of the interference effect. It's essentially like the theory that endurance and strength training stimulate very different adaptations from one another. So when you do both of them together, you limit the amount of adaptations you can get from both. So here's the thing though. Although the studies we do have on the interference effect do show that endurance training does have impact on certain aspects like uh, adaptations of strength training, it actually just shows that they have impacts on power and explosive output, but doesn't reduce muscle gains or strength in a significant way. So the thing is that there are some studies, there are some older studies that do show an interference effect on muscle gain, but those are early studies. And the intention of these studies were to induce an interference effect. So their goal wasn't to create a program or take an approach that maximized hyper, uh, hypertrophic or strength outcomes while including cardio. It was to make a study design that showed this interference effect. So that's what we, and like, if you ever look into literature, that'll be what's called the first finder's effect. Generally, when we find an effect from something, it looks a lot more pronounced or a lot more significant than any other studies that come after it because First and foremost, it's the first study of its kind, and it's extreme enough to induce that type of um, you know, effect. So with the interference effect, if you look at the first studies that were done early on in the 80s, I believe it was um, either, I believe his name was Hicken or Hickson. Um, it was literally like five days of strength training, six days of high-intensity cardio. It was like a super high volume of both, where it, and it was on people that were um, overtrained or already in an overtrained state to begin with. So they did see this interference effect. But the thing is that this interference effect only applies to actual endurance training. So walking or doing steps isn't going to cause an interference effect. And we actually have a recent meta-analysis that came out um, at the end of 2021 by Schumann that concluded that concurrent aerobic and strength training does not compromise muscle hypertrophy and maximal strength development. So now we see with more recent research as they've you know, collected more and more studies and done meta-analysis, which are studies on studies, that this is not as a pronounced effect when it comes to muscle hypertrophy and on strength development. And then also we have to take it from the context, this person was asking about steps. So when it comes to steps, list cardio, like going for a walk or hitting your steps is under the intensity threshold needed to actually interfere with hypertrophy if it did do that in and of itself. So 
you know, this is, you know, we have to really take and isolate things as variables. Like, what are you doing? Now, if you're someone doing long bouts of high intensity intervals or going on a moderate intensity, like long runs, then you're probably going to suffer from the interference effect as you're doing a higher intensity, long duration activity. But that's because it's going to deplete glycogen. It's going to increase your fatigue. It's going to cause higher elevations in cortisol production. It's going to burn more energy. Um, and it's also going to have a greater impact on your joint and connective tissue, which is going to impact your recovery capacity. So that is going to impair your ability to train with weights. But this is because higher forms of cardio activate the sympathetic nervous system. So they increase stress in the body, whereas something like walking and hitting your steps is actually a parasympathetic activity. So we actually see that uh, walking is the only type of exercise that actually induces a parasympathetic uh, effect where it actually reduces uh, cortisol and improves recovery capacity. So this could be applied to in between your training sessions. It's going to improve blood flow. It's going to help with nutrient partitioning. It's going to help you improve your recovery capacity in between your training sessions so you can train better. And then the low intensity cardio like walking also isn't a powerful enough of a stimulus to cause that interference effect. So it's not going to impact your ability to put on muscle and build strength. And if anything, it's going to have a positive impact in your resistance training as it's going to help you increase your aerobic fitness and give you better work capacity so that you feel less gassed like in between or like during your session, as well as in between your sessions. And it also provides health benefits that we don't get from lifting in and of itself. So if you're someone that's worried about that, I really want you to realize like when you hear about the interference effect, they're talking about endurance training. If you're training for a marathon and you're trying to be a bodybuilder, that is going to interference, interfere with one another. But if you're just someone hitting your 10K steps a day, where you're just going on walks and you're staying active and you're keeping your step count high, that's not going to interfere with the muscle building process. Really quick. I just want to play devil's advocate here on this. So while I I agree, I think that like, for sure you want to get that overall activity in and like, you know, it's going to help with recovery. And, and I'm just curious to, to hear your thoughts on this. Like my, my thought goes to, well, from an energy balance standpoint, if you have somebody that is a little bit more of like a kind of quote unquote hard gainer, right? Like for them, I, I just wonder though, if you, if you do too much activity and they have trouble kind of like getting in the amount of food they need to get to gain weight, like what, what are your thoughts there on that? Like kind of what, you, just because, you know what I mean? Like they're ex- expending so much energy. And I think for most people, they do need to move more and they need to get steps in. But again, I think there is a population of people that for them, they, they might want to, I would never tell somebody to move less, but I think if you are specifically trying to gain weight, I could see where if your steps get too high, like you could run into an issue of like, now you have to eat more food. And for some people that could be an issue. Yeah, no, from an appetite perspective, absolutely. But here's the thing, we're speaking about an energy expenditure perspective, and they're talking about an interference perspective. So the interference effect literally refers to, if we look into the literature on it, the fact that cardio and strength training have different adaptive processes. So for instance, with endurance training, it stimulates the MK pathway, which is the energy sensor of the cell that that is turned on or activated when it senses low energy availability. And that happens as a result of low glycogen storage or burning up a lot of fuel. That's why we even see that, you know, some people within even the, the, um, hypertrophy scenario or people that really uh, are big promoters of resistance training, they'll have AMPK training. And how they do that is it's a metabolic stimulus because you're burning through a ton of substrate. Now on the opposite side of the spectrum, we have strength training, which activates the mTOR pathway. So when we look at it mechanistically, when back in the eighties, when they first proposed this interference effect, they said that if you activated AMPK, it would block the effectiveness of mTOR. So essentially if you did endurance training, it would block the um, signaling pathway, the anabolic signaling pathway 
for actually gaining muscle. That's one thing. However, that was only shown in endurance training. If you're doing steps, you're not getting that same uh, signaling interference. However, if it's from an energy expenditure perspective, absolutely. If it's something that you're not getting in enough calories, that's an energy balance perspective issue, as well as the fact that honestly, doing steps doesn't burn that many calories. Like we actually look at it from like a calorie burning perspective. I think that's why there is a larger interference effect from higher intensity activities because per per minute of activity, it's such a higher energy demand. And we have to think about it even from the context of what do, what intensity level is this at? Low intensity activity is going to burn through fat, which fat we don't use during resistance training. So it's not even depleting our fuel substrate. Whereas if you're doing hit intervals, especially for a long duration, or you're tapping into higher levels of like VO2 max, say you're going 70% and above during moderate longer durations of say marathon training, you're tapping into glycogen. You're tapping into glucose, which is going to be your main fuel source for resistance training. So when I'm coming, when they're asking about the interference effect, low intensity, you know, activities like walking aren't going to do that. But if it is inhibiting you from getting enough calories, that's when you need to titrate up calories with the amount of steps you're doing and match your energy expenditure, which is why, you know, we've done episodes, Jeff, with energy flux. And my whole thing is I want you to move more to eat more. I want you to increase your capacity to eat but we can do so in the context of either weight weight loss maintenance or in a building phase and we titrate each other up together. It's not one or the other where we're utilizing. I never utilize just the lever of steps to induce a calorie deficit because not only is that not effective, but also the fact that we know that diet is such a bigger tool for the fat loss process. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I just want, I, I see, they were asking more about the interference effect. Like if you just do steps, is that going to interfere? I see. And, and I think I was thinking more along the lines of if you did high levels of physical activity, I could see where you could potentially run into that issue of like, now you have to eat a lot more calories for that. Right. Um, just, just like anecdotally from my experience personally, right. So this is just me and Jeremiah, you can probably account to this. Like, I feel like for me, if I would have been getting 10,000 steps a day, like I would have had to eat a lot more food potentially, I think, uh, in order to, to gain some weight. And so that, that's just what I, I think, again, it's a very small population that would have to worry about that. But I just thought, you know, might as well play some devil's advocate in this as well. So. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think I, I have too much more to add to that. I feel like, especially if you're talking like steps and a potential interference, the fact that Brandon kind of put the nail on that coffin. I think even for somebody that is like a recreational runner, like I, I think that like, we work with a, we work with like a slightly more gym pop clientele. And then we do get a decent amount of clients that are like, Hey, I like to do Peloton three days a week, or I like to like go for these like two to four mile runs, two to three days a week. And similarly within that, like we have to, of course, like prioritize what's most important, right? Like, okay. If our overall goal is adding muscle tissue, we for sure almost should like go for a four mile run and then immediately go into your training session within that, like your performance probably will be, and I mean, even like, is that the biggest deal? It's probably not optimal, but again, like we want your performance here to be good. So ideally like these are on different days and then we still have to just modulate. Okay. We know that because you're doing this, we are going to need more food for recovery. We have to be very mindful of all these other factors. And again, like, is it like, is that the most ideal thing in the world, right? If you're trying to be the most jacked bodybuilder possible, no, but we can still like make very good progress, like doing those things. I think this is one thing that people kind of misunderstand and overthink a bit where again, especially when we're looking at like that more recreational athlete, 
we can still get very, very good results. And even like, and it, we're kind of all just talking way out. Like the, the question was about steps and we're, I've kind of like taken this in this direction where it's not even really relevant anymore, but those are my thoughts. This, this is something I'm, I'm curious about just to hear your guys' thoughts. So like, I get this a lot with female clients. I feel like when they first come to me, it's like their upper body grows like super quick, but then like their lower body, it, it seems like it's a little bit tougher. And they're always kind of like upset with their lower body. And that could just be fat dis- distribution and, and how that is genetically. But I'm wondering if like this has anything to do with how they have previously trained their legs and potentially even like how they've trained in the past of somebody that is a little bit more like they've always kind of done like more cardio based workouts. And if, if that could be a reason why they might potentially have a little bit tougher time building muscle in their lower body, like almost like their, their lower body has kind of turned their muscles have almost kind of transitioned more to like type one fibers. Does that, does that make sense when I'm trying to explain there? No, Jeff, actually, um, this is something this, no, this is something I'm glad you hit on because it's actually something that I've looked into because I have had personally clients with that. So we know a, the first thing is women and men distribute fat differently. So women are going to store more, they have more fat storing enzymes in their lower body, in their hips and thighs. But women, we also have to look at the type of activities that they're doing more than men are. And especially when they get into weight training, a lot of women come from a cardio background. They were cardio bunnies. They did a lot of hit classes and things of that sort. And we actually see in the literature, if you look into the hit training literature, we see that women more so than men seem to respond poorly to both sprint and hit training because they actually, if we look at like a, a direct comparison between men and females, they actually see that females suffer from more excessive fatigue and they don't get as much of a robust um, like muscle protein synthesis response from hit training than men do. And I know a lot of people just relate muscle protein synthesis to um, like actual resistance training. But when we look at untrained populations, they actually do get an increase in uh, muscle protein synthesis from HIIT training. So what I generally see is if it's a female and they've come from doing a lot of high intensity forms of training, like boot camp classes or HIIT camp classes, if they continue doing that and we're doing a resistance training program, like I put them in, technically they're on a concurrent training program. They're utilizing either very high endurance activities or very high intensity activities. And we do see with the um, uh, interference effect, the higher the intensity activity, the greater the amount of interference that it has because it's depleting fuel substrates. It's really draining you. It's causing excess fatigue. It's cutting into your recovery debt, all those things. And I generally will see that women will be getting less of say like benefits to their lower body. And we know with hypertrophy, it's a local process. So for instance, if you train your legs, you're not going to be growing your biceps. You know what I mean? The same thing kind of happens with the interference effect. If you're doing hit sprints with your legs, you're depleting glycogen within those, your quad fibers, your hamstring fibers. When you go to train and go into those glycolytic rep ranges, like we would do during a bodybuilding session, you're already depleted. So it's going to be harder for you to actually get a robust stimulus in those muscles. Whereas if women aren't doing upper body types of um, aerobic or endurance activities, they're not using like, um, like the upper body rower or an ergometer or anything like that, they're not depleting substrates upper body wise. So they're having more of a robust response up there. So this is something that I've both seen myself, but then also we see it in the literature as well. And it's something that a lot of times very few people hit on. I think Lyle McDonald might be the only person that I've heard hit on this. And I'll often tell my my clients, hey, listen, if you really want to transform your body, let's transition a little bit less away or more away from the high intensity forms of cardio. Let's do 
resistance training as your main form of high-intensity cardio, let's lower the intensity of your actual aerobic training. I still want you to stay aerobically fit and active, but let's do some lists. Let's do some walks. Let's do some parasympathetic activities because we do know also that women have higher cortisol levels on average than men do. So if we're utilizing two forms per day of a high-intensity activity, like we're doing resistance training and we're doing high-intensity interval training, it's just going to be a higher stress in their body. Because, well, and, and it's funny because I, I just, it, it makes sense. Again, I think it goes back to how people train, but then like on the opposite end, it's like when I start training guys, it's like their upper body doesn't grow as quickly, but then like their lower body just like goes, just grows super quick. Like, you know, it's, it's crazy. And I, I it's just like opposite. And I think, again, it just comes down to how people have trained um, in the past. It's just kind of an interesting observation there. Uh, Jeremiah, did you have anything? Yeah, I would say on that point as well, this is something we've talked about a lot with our team lately. Um, as Brandon touched on, just the training modality is super important. And are we actually achieving an effective stimulus for muscle growth? But again, like if we look at lower body training, so like form videos are a huge part of our coaching service, right? Because typically like when somebody's coming from that background, of like they have done a lot of hit work, right? You know, with this theory of effective reps, like basically for us to stimulate muscle growth, we need to take the tissue within or the movement within a couple reps shy of failure, right? To actually stimulate significant muscle growth. So a lot of times like just training has been so short on that, right? So if we're like looking at clients form videos, because after we dial in someone's form, the next piece of that is us actually like teaching the client how to get close enough to failure. Right. And typically, and this isn't just specific to women, but we work with more, a lot more women than men. So I'm going to speak to the women more here. Typically what we'll see is like, if we're looking at, so let's say like the first two weeks we're dialing in someone's form. And then after that, we're focusing on, okay, now we want to really dial in these RIR targets and like your one rep shy of failure, two rep shy of failure, whatever it is. Typically what we'll see is like after a couple of weeks, the upper body movements will be there, right? It's a lot easier to get an upper body movement, not close, but lower body movements are typically the ones where we like really have to push like, Hey, it looks like you could have added like 10, 20 more pounds there. Right. So I think across the board, it's just, it's because straight up for most lower body movements, like a Romanian deadlift is a lot harder to take closer to failure or, or like a back squat is a lot harder to take that close to failure versus like a bench press. So very much what we're focusing on with clients, especially like when someone that hasn't um, like isn't able to sufficiently train close to failure yet. And we want to teach them how to do that. Typically what we're focusing on with like a new client in this case is, okay, how can we push you in a position where, how can we like set you up to execute as best possible with as little thought possible, right? So for example, and again, like, I feel like I've kind of like downplayed barbell back squats and there's nothing wrong with that. But if we look at like a barbell back squat where there's so much thought has to go into this, like how well am I stabilizing? What's my technique? Like, like all these different variables versus like, Hey, let's put you in a hack squat. We want your feet about here or even a leg press, right? We want your feet about here. We want you to come about this low. We just want you to push here, right? Like we're trying to put clients in a position where they have to think as little as possible and they can just focus on output. And then later we can like progress back to those things. But I think like just that piece of it in itself, like when we're looking at lower body versus upper body, I think it's part of it too, is just, it's a lot harder to like get close to failure. I think an important part of that is like actually teaching clients how to do that. But I've also found like the more stable we can make the movement. And again, like the better we can just set them up to execute without having to think through all these different nuances, the better. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's a good point you bring up that it, it is also harder to train closer to failure with, with legs. Cause it's just, I mean, it just freaking sucks. Right. I know that I, I'm sure you guys deal with the same thing when you, when you train your legs too. Um, 
so yeah, they're really interesting there. I'm, I'm sure it's probably a combination of, of all those, but that's, that's definitely a big one that I, that I didn't even really think about. Um, cool. Let's go into the next question. So how do you know when to end a building phase and start a cut? Yeah. So this, what I would say is check out Brandon Fry's podcast. I don't know if you should cut or build because really there could not be a better podcast that answers this exact question. And really I will say this is essentially just my take as a wrap of, of that, but basically we know for metabolic health. Um, and this is, again, it's like when we're putting out ranges, like body fat percentage ranges, understand it depends. And also I have to say, these are, I'm probably stealing Brandon's thunder because it's <laughs> basically just all stuff I learned from you, but for metabolic health, managing inflammation, preserving insulin sensitivity, we know that for most women saying like the, approximately the 18 to 30% body fat range is going to be ideal. Now, we also know that having higher body fat doesn't necessarily hurt your ability to add lean muscle, but it does have some detriments to your health. So for example, you have too much body fat, especially visceral body fat. So that's where other organs, you're going to see a rapid decline in insulin sensitivity and increase in insulin resistance. Um, and again, per our podcast, this, ins- this increase in insulin resistance seems to happen in men above about 20% body fat and women above about 30% body fat. So really like this was a female that asked this question. So really what I would say again is go back and listen to that podcast, but 18 to 20 26% body fat for a woman, roughly um, you're probably good to enter a building phase, but over 30%, we probably would suggest you enter a fat loss phase for a mini cut. But again, like somebody could look like they're like, 20, this female could look like she's like 20% body fat, but we also have to look at biofeedback. So for example, if somebody's feeling lethargic after meals, if they're losing pumps in the gym, this is a sign this is feeling lethargic as a whole, but especially after meals. Um, this is a sign that we're starting to get a little bit more insulin resistant. Your cells aren't going to be uptaking glucose quite as effectively. So we may need to drop some body fat right now past that. Like what I'll say is have you added the tissue that you wanted to, which can also be a very hard thing to actually measure in a building phase, right? I think that first, like there is the rare individual that, and it kind of depends on how you got about it, which I would also say, go back and listen to the Lean Games Blueprint podcast, which is also great as far as this, but it can also be somewhat hard to measure um, progress in a building phase, but we want a general idea that like you have added a good amount of tissue. Um, I would say like at very least, you spend at least six months here, but really for most people to make it productive, we're going to need closer to like a year. And that's just, that's not necessarily what everybody wants to hear, but I think that's important to understand because mostly growth just happens so slowly, right? Whereas fat loss happens very quickly. Um, But I mean, basically from there, another piece of it can be just like, and I'm kind of hesitant to say this, but are you like uncomfortable in your clothes? Are you comfortable in how you feel? Because the reality too is for some people like, we could, I could say that and it could be like, okay, well, I'm two weeks into the building phase. I feel a little bit bloated. So I want to go back into the fat loss phase. Right. So I think that the context there is important, but do we feel like basically we've strung together at least a productive six to eight months where we've consistently been fueling ourselves. We've been nailing our nutrient timing. We've been seeing quality pumps. We've been progressing the logbook over time and getting stronger. Um, then again, do you feel like if we're not bumping up against that, like 30% body fat, for example. So again, let's say we're at like, that's a female at like 24%. And she's just trying to decide like, should I in this building phase or not? What I'll say is like, if you're not certain that you have enough tissue, um, you're kind of concerned, maybe you didn't, I would probably extend it longer. 
But if you're feeling pretty confident, like, hey, I definitely have added some shape here. I've seen myself get a lot stronger. I really nailed all these variables. Then you're probably perfectly fine to enter a fat loss phase. Yeah, I mean, um, Jeremiah pretty much summed up my entire uh, <laughs> my entire answer right there. I, you know, it's it's great to hear that you learned through that, that podcast, my man. So whoever asked this question, I definitely suggest I did a two part series on the concept of the P ratio and how to maximize the variables around the P ratio and also how to delineate or differentiate, you know, should I bulk, should I cut or, or what phase should I really go into? And I went through everything from insulin sensitivity to uh, muscle mass level to uh, inflammation to biofeedback to different parameters within your health, both subjectively and objectively that you should look for. And Jeremiah did an incredible job, you know, summing up many of the things that I hit on within that. So that's a two-parter. And then I have a lean gains blueprint that Jeremiah and I did as well, which is another two-parter. So I definitely want to send you over to that because within the context of a few minutes, we would never be able to do justice on topics that we covered probably a collective like six hours. So you have a couple hours, you have a good amount of content to listen to from uh, Jeremiah's Living Lean podcast to say the least. But ultimately, it's going to come down to many different reasons. And just think about it. We cannot separate physiology from psychology. So, you know, he encompassed many things. Really, my, my biggest statement to you is you have to be in a state where your body's physically in a good place, meaning metabolically, meaning uh, internally. You know, I always say a healthy body is a responsive body. So you want to be make sure that you're in a good state of body fat in terms of your level. I do recommend between 18 and 26, you're still in a good phase for building. If you get up around that 30% body fat level, like Jeremiah mentioned, you know, I have looked into the literature and I do cite it on that podcast about the, the increase in visceral adiposity after that level, we see an increase, a market increase in insulin resistance. Your, your cells stop being responsive to insulin's actions. So you can't uptake nutrients. So your nutrient partitioning goes down. You start partitioning more of the calories that you're taking in during that building phase. So if you're near a surplus, which you should be um, during a building phase, you're going to partition more of those to fat cells than you are to muscle cells. You're going to get less pumps in the gym. You're going to feel, you're going to see more water retention. This is something that's very prominent with women. I see that um, it's going to skew some of your anabolic and catabolic hormones. So you're going to see potentially higher estrogen levels. You're going to have higher estrogen conversion. And this relates to men as well. You're going to see lower testosterone levels, higher estrogen levels. So it throws off a male's anabolic uh, hormone profile in terms of their sex hormones. So there's many facets and many aspects that we need to look at to see, is this the most optimal state for me to continue building in? Or is it time for me to pull back the layers of body fat and really prime myself, go into a primer phase or a mini cut to really potentiate my next phase of gaining or to cement yourself and put you in a better place for your, your future fat loss phase. And then in addition to that, just keep in mind that this is a long-term process. Building muscle, especially this is a female asking this question, it is such a long and energy-intensive process. And a lot of times we approach muscle-building phases in a very similar mindset and time scale as we do fat loss phases. So most people will look at a, a building phase and they'll say, I'm going to do exactly, you know, I had a really successful fat loss phase. I'm going to do exactly what I did my fat loss phase for my building phase. So I'm going to use, you know, I did a 500 calorie deficit. So I'm going to do a 500 calorie surplus. I did one week per pound or one pound per week of fat loss. I'm going to do one pound per week of muscle gain. And it just doesn't work like that. There's, there's many things, you know, I always say there's about a four to one ratio. So for the time you spend cutting, you should spend four times as much time building. So for instance, just a, a hypothetical example, if I keep a client in an eight month building phase, then we might transition into a two month cutting phase. But also with that, I take the same 
approach to that four to one ratio to their rate of gain compared to their rate of loss. So during a fat loss phase, I generally like to aim for 0.5 to 1% body fat or body weight loss per week. Whereas in a building phase, I'm taking a 0.25% rate of gain um, per week. So it's, it's a there's a big differentiation between the two. And you have to realize that this is an investment. This is an investment to your future self, a more muscular, uh, a better, a stronger, a more developed version of yourself. So put in the time, take it slow, and you're going to see that the proportion of muscle that you gain during a slow and steady building phase is going to be much higher quality than if you rush the process, accumulate more adipose tissue, and then have to rush out of it to go into a fat loss phase and potentially compromise what you've gained. Cool. Yeah. You guys, I mean, you guys summed it up perfectly. I, I mean, really, I, I don't have much else to add to it. I would say if, if there's anything to look out for is just like hunger levels. I think that that's important. Like if those have just gone down the drain and like, you just, it, it's really tough to get in the amount of calories you need. I definitely think it's probably time to look into um, getting out of a building phase. But I think all those things that you guys went over, I think are probably going to, uh, they're going to get there before that really becomes an issue. So um, I think you guys sum that up great. And yeah, definitely would push you towards that. Those two podcasts, even though we're not allowed to uh, market other podcasts on this podcast, I'm just kidding. Definitely go check out living uh, lean for sure. I literally go back and take notes on all the podcasts that Brett and I record. So I also want to yeah. make sure that like, I'm giving that, that question is probably like a lot of Brandon's exact words. Cause I literally go back and take notes on that. So I also want to make sure that like, I probably sounded a lot smarter with that answer than the rest of my answers, and that's why. Hey, man, I always say this is the ripple effect of coaching, man. What I'm able to teach you and you're able to pass on, I'm more than proud of it. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, so definitely definitely check out those episodes. I know you guys have brought I mean, the last, what, like probably four episodes or so has been mostly around those kind of in-depth uh, dives into into those uh, and the nutrient timing and then uh, lean gains. Cool. So let's do – we got time for one more question. Um, I thought this was a good one. Uh and I think it's hypoglycemic, but I tend to go hypoglycemic when I eat carbs pre-workout. Um, is that, am I getting that right? Cause it's just said hypo. Yeah, they, they did mean hypoglycemic. Okay. Uh, so I tend to go hypoglycemic when I eat carbs pre-workout, any suggestions you can make to help me manage this? Yeah. So what this person was describing, what's is what's called rebound hypoglycemia. So this is essentially a sensation of feeling low blood sugar after taking in carbohydrates or a meal, especially in the context of round exercise. And this is something, there's two different contexts. So I'm, I'm going to kind of separate it out. There's both some people that really do suffer from this. We actually see their blood glucose levels drop. You can measure it with a glucometer. So I do this with certain clients of mine. And then there's some people that they have a psychological effect. So we do see in some literature that there are people that think that they suffer from hypoglycemia. And I'm not saying that this is this person's specific example. I just will, I do want to hit on it because it is something that all fair Jeremiah and I have spoken about is there is some literature that has shown that some people anticipate that they have a hypoglycemic response. They feel lightheaded or they feel like they're having, like it's, you know, they get up really quickly and they feel hypotensive, meaning their blood pressure drops and they think it's due to low blood sugar. But in actuality, when they actually measure these people in research studies, they actually have normal blood sugar levels. So we need to differentiate, but say this person really is having a hypoglycemic incidence where they're having carbohydrates, they're spiking their insulin, their blood glucose is dropping really quickly as a result. We see that there's a couple methods I've utilized with clients to resolve this because there are some people that are so insulin sensitive that their body secretes insulin. So they have carbohydrates, they ingest carbohydrates, they get broken down to glucose, blood glucose enters the bloodstream and your body, your pancreas releases insulin to lower that blood glucose level. 
Well, with some people, they over-secrete insulin and it drops their blood sugar more than expected. So instead of being right in their optimal range, it goes a little bit lower than expected. Now, there's a couple ways that we could mitigate this. So one way that I've found, and this is actually backed up in research as well, but I've utilized this with clients and seen it to be effective, is to use a low glycemic mixed meal meaning we're utilizing a low glycemic carb and a mixed meal, meaning we're pairing it with protein, which is going to slow down digestion. And potentially we may use a fat source to even slow it down all the more. So really what we're doing there is we're providing a more stable rise in blood glucose and thus less of an insulin response. So you're getting less of that compensatory effect that's driving down your blood glucose response. Another way that we can mitigate this, so I suggest this as well, is you could shift your carbohydrate intake closer to your workout. And you could bridge that with an intra-workout product. So instead of having a spike and then a dip, you would have more of a stable uh, period of taking in carbohydrates throughout the workout. So you're going to get the pre-workout benefits of consuming carbohydrates, but you're also going to have stable blood sugar throughout it. And I do have a podcast that is with Jeremiah again on nutrient timing. We dove in incredible detail into the intricacies of intra-workout nutrition, how to stabilize blood glucose, and all the benefits of pre-intra and post-workout nutrition, which I definitely suggest you listen to, um, because I think this will be really eye-opening to you as to the many benefits and how you can mitigate some of these side effects. Because as this person was discussing with me, they get low blood sugar symptoms, and then it throws off their workout. They feel low energy. They feel kind of like less stable, both in terms of their blood sugar, but also like their confidence in the gym because they feel shitty. Um, but there's also, um, there's also research that has shown that with people that suffer from rebound hypoglycemia, when they take in carbohydrates in order to prevent this rapid drop in blood sugar, what they can do is they could actually do like a 15 to 20 minute warm up to mitigate this issue. So it's actually going to restabilize their insulin, their blood glucose levels to more healthy ranges just by, instead of taking in carbohydrates, you know, sitting, and then going right into your workout, right to your first working set and going right into a sympathetic state, just do a 15 to 20 minute workout where you get blood flowing, you get nutrient delivery. It's going to upregulate what's called glute four translocation, which is really anytime we, we contract muscles, it upregulates and it increases our body's ability to absorb glucose into muscle cells. So it's going to stabilize that blood sugar for you. And we have seen that, especially with athletes that that 15 to 20 minute, um, warm up has been really beneficial for, especially like soccer players and basketball players that have longer bouts of higher intensity activities where they're sprinting and they're, they're, it's kind of concomitant, meaning they're, they're doing really high intensities and they're taking a break and it's a very short break. Whereas with resistance training, we're at less of a likelihood to have those really big rises and falls in blood glucose because you're doing something high intensity, but then you're taking a couple minutes in between for a break. So those are all methods that you could utilize to just stabilize your blood sugar. I have, I don't have anything to add. I just have a couple uh, follow-up questions there for you, Brandon. Um, so hypo would be like, you get like kind of sweaty, like kind of weak feeling, right? That's, that's what hypo would be hypoglycemic. That's the feeling. Yeah, so it's, it's feelings of low blood sugar. So some people will feel lightheaded. They will get a sweaty sensation. Um, some people will get a headache as well. So yes. And like, cra- like kind of like craving carbohydrates, almost in a way, like kind of craving sugar, they'll maybe get that feeling so, as well. So not always. So that is a lot of times we see that as a psychological effect. Okay. Um, that some people do have that anticipatory response where they they feel like they're low blood sugar. So then they have a craving or it kind of incites that, but that's more of an anticipatory, like they're used to going to cravey foods or going to carbohydrate rich foods when they feel that low blood sugar sensation. So we have to realize hyperplayable foods have a huge impact on the dopaminergic system. So they release dopamine from the brain and anything that's dopamine releasing kind of is, is 
um, habit forming. So anything that you do, even going to the gym and getting endorphin rush, that's dopamine producing as well. It's, it's habit forming. It makes you want to do it again and again. So if someone knows they have this psychological um, link in their heads, listen, when I go hypo, I feel shitty. And then I have, you know, gummy bears or something and they feel better as a result. It's not only helping them physiologically because they're getting a dopamine release. So they feel better, but it's also impacting them psychologically because they're linking the two. So it's almost like habit stacking. Interesting. And uh, two, two more follow-up questions real quick. So what would that, if you were to take your blood glucose levels, what would that number kind of be around um, if you were to take it during this uh, time? It's it's extremely variable, my friend, uh, to okay. be honest with you. So honestly, generally we see the healthy range between 70 and 85. I will say that in blood work, you'll see up to 99 as the normal reference range in the American, um, like on our American US blood work. So the reference range on blood work, if you were to get it done, is between 65 and 99 is considered normal. I do want to put a caveat in there though. We do have literature that shows that any for every point above 85 milligrams per deciliter in US um, numbers, that it, it increases your likelihood of developing diabetes by 6% in the next decade. So for instance, if you are, so every point above 84, so if you're at a 95, your doctor is going to tell you you're completely fine. You're, you're in the normal range. You're not even going to say anything about your blood glucose, but you're at a 60% increased prevalence of developing type two diabetes in the next 10 years. So really what I try to get with my clients is between that 70 and 85 is normal. But if you see yourself and you're dropping, say you do have a glucometer and after a meal, you're getting down to 45 or 50, that's a sign of hypoglycemia. Now in a lot of those research studies, what they've shown is people think, you know, they, they psychologically believe and they feel, and that's the thing we can't separate. There's a huge placebo effect behind all of this, whether it's supplementation or training, or even just our beliefs. So if someone thinks they went hypo, even if they don't, they're not hypo physiologically, they feel the symptoms. So a lot of times when they test their blood sugar, they're between that 85 to hundred. So they're in normal, they're euglycemic, they're normal glycemia. However, they feel those symptoms. So that's where we have to rectify more on the mental state. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I didn't know if it was, if it, I, I figured it would be like, I just didn't know if the, the number would go below 70 or, or what it would be. I'm just, uh, just was curious. Generally, it would be, it would be categorized under 65. Okay. And then, and then lastly, you said it, it would mean that you're like, potentially insulin sensitive, right? Rather than insulin resistant. It could be. And it also could be a sign of low cortisol. So there are some adrenal based issues that would cause, because we have to think about there's only one hormone in the body that lowers blood glucose and it's insulin, but there's so many other hormones that raise blood glucose. So let's think about it. Catecholamines, meaning epinephrine and norepinephrine. There's growth hormone increases, um, uh, not cortisol levels, blood glucose levels. Cortisol increases blood glucose levels, glucagon, all these hormones we have to raise blood sugar because that is something that we need to liberate energy from. So we utilize blood glucose. That's the main fuel source for the brain. So our number one priority is to always have energy fuel source for the brain. So we have all these hormones to elevate blood glucose, but we only have insulin to lower blood glucose. So if you're in a state where your growth hormone levels are low, you could have low blood sugar. If you're in a state where your cortisol levels are low, you could have low blood sugar. It's usually very prominent in those with low cortisol output, which would be a sign of an adrenal issue. So if someone had adrenal insufficiency, you'll generally see that they have low uh, hypoglycemic symptoms as well. Interesting. Cool. No, no follow-up questions on that. Thanks for explaining that. I, I don't have anything to, to add to that as well. So Jeremiah. Um, no, I think, he, I think Brandon nailed it. Yeah. Um, cool. Another good episode guys. Um, I think there's a ton of information in this one. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if you guys have any, any, uh, ending thoughts or anything like that before we uh, hop off. Absolutely. I, know we have, I, think, like, 
I know we have a few more questions to go get through yet. So we'll definitely have to record a couple more of these. And apologies to everyone who didn't get to your questions. We really appreciate you guys asking questions. We also want to provide as much nuance and depth as possible and like actually give you an in-depth answer that we can't do in just like an Instagram Q&A. So we appreciate everybody that asked questions. And again, like if we didn't answer your question on this episode, we'll get to it in the future. Absolutely. I'm, I just want to reinforce. That is exactly what I was going to say. I want to reinforce what Jeremiah said. We really do appreciate. I got a ton of questions. All of us got a ton of questions. So we really appreciate everyone's participation in this. And like he mentioned, there's so much context that is taken into consideration. Like for anyone that's reached out to me with questions, you generally know if you sent me a very short question that was generalized, I reached back out for more details, more in context to what your interest was, as well as maybe your specific um, circumstances and things of that sort, because we do want to answer with some type of context because giving general information gives you general results. It's not going to be fit for you. And at the same time, we want to make sure that it's as applicable to people as possible. So we really do take our time. We go through these questions. We don't rush the process. We really give you as much of our information and experience as possible. And we're going to continue doing these to provide value rather than just rushing through. You know, we, we had like 20 questions on our list. We could have rushed through them and give you guys like these really short answers, but it wouldn't have provided as much value and insight as you guys were probably looking for. Yeah, I, I agree. I, when uh, Jeremiah sent over the first batch of questions, I was like, all right, we're not getting through all these today. I already know it. Um, but yeah, uh, the other thing I wanted to hit on this was, as you can tell, sometimes it's hard, I feel like, to do these uh, roundtables because like sometimes it's like there's kind of a lag in Zoom. So it's like if somebody wants to talk, it's like you both go at the same time. and then and But hopefully what I'm trying to get out here with this is hopefully one day we can do a couple in person and we won't have to uh, deal with that. Hell yeah. Cool. That's it. Uh, We will talk to everybody soon. Later.